Sex and happiness both enrich our lives, yet it's surprising how few people can honestly say that they enjoy regular and fulfilling sex or describe themselves and their lives as happy. Host Lori Handlers helps you to experience real intimacy and happiness. You'll laugh a little, learn a little, and we hope put a smile on your face and a smile in your life. Now here's Lori. You know, each week I try to bring you something that's thought-provoking. I like to have you feel more, but also make room for more pleasure in your body. And today we're going to have another uh, kind of a sobering uh, subject, And uh, but it doesn't matter because it once you get it, you will be empowered. And that's what I hope for, and that's what I know my guest hopes for too, even though we haven't really talked yet. Her name is Kitty Stryker, and she's a writer and activist, an authority on developing a consent culture in alternative communities. She's the editor of Ask, Building Consent Culture. So Kitty, welcome to Sex and Happiness. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad. Listen, you, Martha Tara Lee introduced us, and everyone has heard shows with me and Martha, both on Martha's show and on my show. So I think people are familiar with her. And I have really some very, very um, loyal and wonderful um, fans out there. So I'm thrilled that you're here. And I know that they know that you're coming from good reference. Anyway, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you got into this. Like you weren't born thinking about consent. What happened and how did you get into it? Did you study something or did something happen to you or happen to friends around you or whatever that made you become an activist? Oh, well, I mean, I, I was kind of born into activism in that my parents used to take me to uh, local abortion clinics to uh, counter protest people who are trying to prevent women from having access to uh, reproductive rights. So um, I was doing that when I was like five. Wow, um, that's impressive. Yeah, so I, I kind of did grow up with um, a very strong desire to, to change the world if I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> got it so, got it. yeah, so, you know, my parents really encouraged me in that. They encouraged me to think critically, um, ask lots of questions. I think sometimes they regretted teaching me to ask lots of questions to challenge authority, but, um, you know, it served me well. <laughs> your parents sound a little like my parents and your upbringing sounds a little like mine, except I know that we're decades different, but, uh, my parents didn't actually go and demonstrate, but they encouraged me to, and mm -hmm. they also encouraged me to ask a lot of questions. And I think exactly what you said. I think they lived to regret that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I had a, a Take Back the Night shirt, uh, one of my first rallies that was like five or six sizes too big for me, but I would wear it as like a nightgown, you know. So I really, I did get raised into um, feminism and uh, and activism specifically. So I, I had some understanding of consent. Um, and some understanding about power dynamics and consent, but it didn't really click for me until, um, I was, uh, sitting with a friend of mine. I think we were like 27 or something at the time. 
and um, we were talking about our experiences in the kinky community, the BDSM community, and uh, realized that we had had lots of experiences that would be considered sexual assault if we were not within that scene. But within the scene, it was considered very normal. Um, it was considered just part of the learning process. So and, wait a second. Yeah. Let me see if I understand what you just said. With it, outside of the kink community, you had had lots of experiences that would be classified, if you had considered it like that, to be boundary violations and trespasses. But within the kink community, it was considered to be consensual. It was uh, not necessarily considered consensual, but considered normal. Oh, okay. Which I think is a is an interesting differentiation. Um, I I began to think a lot about the various ways where we have come to accept violating other people's boundaries as normal um, and almost as okay or expected. Yes. Uh, when it's not, you know, like we, we if we don't learn that we can say that's fucked up, don't do it. Um, you know, I think that we, we just sort of learn to go along with it because to fight it is to be traumatized. Yes. By the- or ostracized or, or ostracized or both. Yeah. Or, or many other things. So yes, I totally get what you're saying. And so, yeah, it's normalized and that's uh that's not such a, and people come to expect it. Those are really operative words that you use there. Yeah. And I think that like, I mean, as I thought about it more and thought more about my experiences um, with sexuality in my twenties, I realized like, Oh, actually this happens a lot. This isn't just because I'm kinky or just because I'm non-monogamous or just because I'm queer. This is because I live within a culture that has taught people that pushing people's boundaries is okay on some level. Yes, I get it. I get it. So, so 27, I'm just trying to picture this. So you're sitting with a friend at 27 and you realize this and then what? Because you've already got, I'm asking this because you've already got this background in protesting, demonstrating your parents. You know, you, I love the, I, I see the picture of you wearing the take back the night, too big shirt, you know. <laughs> um, so you're 27 and then what? what? What decision do you, I mean, it sounds like you made a decision then and there. I don't know. Yeah. So the friend and I, we decided that we wanted to start doing a workshop about this, um, basically teaching community members and community leaders things that they could actively do to make consent more of a central theme within the spaces they were in. Um, so like, for example, we, we did a, our workshop was called safe ward. So like in the BDSM community, safe words are something that you say to stop a scene or to tell the other person that you need to check in. And we played off of that by calling it safe ward. So like moving towards safety. Um, and then we would talk to people about uh, some, some things that were pretty normal, like having uh, 
dungeon monitors um, who sit and make sure that everything is safe within these kinky spaces had training on what to do if someone came up to them and said, hey, my boundaries have been violated. Oh, that's Um, so cool. A lot of them didn't really have that kind of experience. So they would tend to go for like, oh, well, we're what we're doing is sort of maybe or maybe not legal because depending on where you live, uh, kinky sex is not always legal. Uh, so I, I live in one of those places. I live in one of those places. I live in Arizona. Yeah, sure. so. <laughs> I mean, and I was I was raised in Massachusetts. Um, I remember I think I was 16 and just learning about the BDSM community when um, police raided a private home and arrested people for assault with a deadly weapon for being kinky. Um, That was uh, Attleboro. Wow. Um, So, like, you know, I I was very aware that, like, the BDSM community tends to be very tentative about law enforcement, but we didn't have anything else for people to do. So you were sort of, like, damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, So I was like, all right, I want to make something better. I want to find a way to create um, a transformative justice style of dealing with these issues so that people don't have to go to the police, mm-hmm. um, but really will good. still be believed and, and be taken care of. Yeah, really good. We're going to take a short break right here, but uh, when we come back, I want to, I, I love the whole notion of this. I want to hear more about the trainings. And um, I just must mention that my very first Take Back the Night March was in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> so, oh, <it's> so great. <laughs> I probably know your parents. I don't know. <laughs> it's likely. But um, that's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, so I want to talk about this some more because when we come back, because I think it's important that people actually self-regulate so that the police and the law that do not have to be called in because that leads to a whole nother set of circumstances and other ramifications that people didn't necessarily expect. Absolutely. And nor do they necessarily welcome. So um, so if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Sex and Happiness. I'm Laurie Handlers. I'm interviewing Kitty Stryker, who seems to be an activist since she was at least five, probably before she came out. Her parents were planning how they were going to have an activist baby, and she is it. Uh, but she's no baby anymore. And... Um, <laughs> And she's uh, talking about training people to create safe spaces in which people can experiment and explore their sexuality, their kinks, and other things. We'll find out more when we come back. Stay tuned. My question for people right now is if you're a woman who could use a little zest and zing in your arousal response, or maybe you know women or a woman who could use this, because many women say that their feelings of desire, arousal, and sexual satisfaction don't happen as naturally or as often as they'd like. So I want to tell you about Zestra, because Zestra was developed to meet this much-needed option for women. Uh, Zestra safe and a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts and is created to help women have increased sexual sensations. Zestra comes in convenient single dose personal packets. Each packet keeps the essential arousal oils and extracts free, fresh and safe from light. 
And with application of Zestra, it starts to work within three to five minutes. And at about 10 minutes, there's something called the Zestra Rush. And that can last up to about 45 minutes. The great news is that Zestra can be used as frequently as you like during each sexual experience. Now, I'm somebody who believes that all women deserve sexual satisfaction. That's why I do this show, in case you hadn't noticed. So I believe that men and women deserve sexual satisfaction. So if you're a woman who isn't getting that kind of arousal response that you want, please call 877-426-8047. That's 877-426-8047. And please remember to say you heard about Zestra from Laurie Handler's on the Sex and Happiness Show. Are you wondering what book to read to jumpstart your life? Get the best from relationships? Attain the deepest feelings of intimacy? Do you want the best sex along with great happiness? Get your copy of Sex and Happiness, The Tantric Laws of Intimacy by Lori Handlers right now. You'll learn how to make love in the unknown, take the performance anxiety and reaching a goal out of sex. You'll learn subtle ways of communication and really important practices to empower you when dealing with an intimate partner. You'll let go of blame and struggle. Doesn't this sound great? Sex and happiness puts the innocence back into sex and gives Tantra the respect it deserves. Take charge of your life, physically, emotionally, and spiritually with Sex and Happiness by Lori Handlers. Only $19.99 paperback and $14.99 ebook. Order your copy today by going to ButterflyWorkshops.com. That's ButterflyWorkshops.com for your copy of Sex and Happiness. I want to talk to you about the craziest and most inventive sex toy or sex enhancement that I've come upon in a long time. It's called Love Rider, L-U-V-R-Y-D-R. That's L-U-V-R-Y-D-R, Love Rider. So I know the couple that invented it. They never intended to invent it. They stumbled upon it. And isn't that how most things go in life? The subtitle to Love Rider is Grab the Bar and Ride Your Lover Wild. And I want to tell you that I've had multiple experiences with Love Rider. I've taken it all around the world and I've had lovers experience it. I've given it to them overnight and told them to come back and tell me their experience with it. And every one of them comes back with a raving report. It's a harness that the person receiving puts around their shoulders, either forwards or backwards, whatever. It depends on what position you want to use a love writer in. And the person who's giving, the penetrator, takes the handlebar like they're riding a horse and they lean back and they get amazing angles of penetration from using this device. It's hard to describe, but I want to encourage you to go there and look it up. Listen, my lover gave it a five and a half stars out of five. That's all I got to say. So go to loverider.com and look for this beautiful invention and you can use my name if you call them or you can use my code butterfly workshops letting them know that you heard about love writer through me that's loverider.com l-u-v-r-y-d-r We're back with Sex and Happiness and I'm Laurie Handlers and I'm interviewing Kitty Stryker today 
who has accomplished a whole lot and is accomplishing more. She's the editor of Ask, Building Consent Culture, and an intersectional anthology available in October. Oh, it's an... I keep reading it as and... It's an intersectional anthology available in October from Thorn Tree Press. Kitty, can you tell me what an intersectional means? Intersectional anthology? I didn't catch that before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one thing that was really important to me in writing this book is I wanted to signal boost and center voices that don't normally get heard in conversations about consent. Um In my experience, a lot of reading and a lot of activism, most of the people who get platforms to talk about consent are cisgendered white women. And and a lot of them are straight as well. And that's great. Like, that is important. But I wanted my book to center on black and brown voices, trans people, genderqueer people, people who don't normally get to have um, space to talk about their experiences. So that's what intersectional means? Intersectional, well, intersectional feminism specifically is um, is a type of feminism that acknowledges the ways in which oppressions uh, intersect with each other. Okay. So that if you're a black woman, for example, you will deal with a certain kind of oppression. Um, but it is also important for you to remember that it, a trans woman is dealing with other types of oppression and like, I don't know. There's like, there's ways in which these identities intersect that can make those oppressions more or less toxic. So it's a lot of balancing an understanding of the ways in which uh, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy impacts different people in different ways while it's still being toxic for everyone. Right, I actually understand you now. Okay, so they intersect. They may not be exactly the same, but they intersect enough that if compared and connected, there's more power to it and more something more that people can do about it, or at least more compassion. Oftentimes, people, when people ask questions or question certain things, they're framed as racist or they're framed as ageist or they're framed as something... They don't get it. They don't understand. And as we move and people become more fluid by understanding each other, we have a better, I think we have a better chance of shifting things and changing things. So I'm, I'm hearing you and I'm, I'm connecting to what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think like I, I have to acknowledge that as a, as a white person who identifies as the gender I was assigned at birth, I do have a lot of privilege and like, For me, the way that I try to enact that privilege is to be very patient with people um, when it comes to things like racism, when it comes to things like transphobia, because I'm not the one who has to deal with those microaggressions. Right. So I try to, to be in service to those communities and help other people understand where they're coming from. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for doing that. I appreciate you. And I know, and I know some people appreciate you. I also know that some people who are being uh, transgressed and being uh, oppressed don't necessarily appreciate that. So I know it's a, it, it's kind of like a tightrope sometimes. 
I thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But you know, I like I think that allyship means um being an act of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes that means that someone's gonna be like, I don't like the way that you're doing this and like I just try to keep learning from the feedback and expanding my understanding. Beautiful. So say, say more about the trainings. So you train these. So I'm going back to before when you were talking about people having parties or gatherings where there was kink involved and you were, you trained people to hold space. That's how that's, those are my, yeah. ter- my words, but you train people to hold space and keep a safety so what would be involved in the training, if you could say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it was like two hours of material. And some of it was um, like I would show people clips of what kink looks like in the media. And um, we would have a conversation about the fact that when you see uh, violations of consent in media that is depicting a male dominant and a female submissive. It is portrayed as sexy. It's portrayed as transgressive. Um, It's portrayed as a little bit dangerous, but that's hot. When you see consent violations between a female dominant and a male submissive, it's seen as funny. Um, It's, it's, it's made fun of. It's a joke. And I wanted people to think about that and think about like how, that means that people internalize these messages. It means that when men have their their consent violated, we laugh it off and we say, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, you're a dude, so you must want it all the time anyway. How bad could it really be? And for women, we say, oh, well, you, you probably kind of wanted that, though, you know, or the ways in which, like, I've, I have conversations with women all the time who are like, oh, it really ruins it for me if somebody is like asking me if they can kiss me. And I'm like, Oh God, like once you get started on that path, then it's like, Oh, I don't like communicating about consent. I just want it all to be a surprise. Like that just seems really dangerous to me. Yeah, me too. I, and I also, I mean, I, I've been in enough scenes or enough environments. Also, I take people to clothing, optional swingers resorts to like experience freedom of sex positivity and every once in a while there's somebody there who doesn't ask who just grabs and pinches things <laughs> and yeah. it's just like uh dude where what boat did you get off like you don't we don't do that here you ask everything and you don't just come up to someone even if you've talked to them for the last five days at the right. pool naked you still don't go and pinch a nipple without asking, like, get out of here, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, but that sort of thing happens to me at almost every gay pride I ever go to. Like, you know, I mean, I, I totally have straight women come up to me and just grab my boobs for no reason. Sometimes they don't even look at my face. They just grab my boobs. And oh. it's like, it made me realize just how normalized that sort of thing is. Yeah. And how we say, oh, well, you know, if a girl's doing it, it's not so bad. Or, um, oh, well, if they're in a kinky relationship, like, maybe there's, like, some erotic undertones to it. I wrote a, a piece when I was first working on this whole project about how it kind of creeps me out that 
serial killers are so um, sexualized within BDSM community. There's a lot of people on FetLife, a lot of male dominants in particular, who deify serial killers and serial abusers as like super sexy. And that's really concerning to me. I'm getting sick as you, as you speak about that. I mean, I'm not yeah. on FetLife, so I don't know this, but I know it now because you just told me. And, um, I mean, FetLife is like, FetLife is kind of like, uh, it was supposed to be Facebook for kinky people. I think it's more like 4chan for kinky people. It's just like a really, it can be a great resource for some, but I, I personally find it to be, um, a very toxic online space. Mm. Um, but it, it has been a really great place for me to observe the toxicness within the BDSM community. And like, I love, I love kinky sex. Like, I think that kinky sex is great. And if people are into it, they should be able to pursue it with other people who are into it. But I am, I am concerned that because the kinky community says things like, oh, well, it's all about safe, sane, and consensual. They don't really sit down and think about, well, what does that mean? Like, what is safety within a space where you're doing some fundamentally unsafe things? What is sanity when other people, when society at large thinks that what you're doing is not sane? How do we define these these words? Mm. Um, and so I, I think that basically I took my sex positive twenties and overlaid it with um, my uh, second wave feminist upbringing and found like a middle ground of sex, being sex critical is what I call it. Um, so I, I tried to find something in the middle between sex positive and sex negative feminisms. Because so, I think they both bring really important stuff to the table. This is exactly what I think I said in my opening when I said this is going to be a sobering topic. So it is a sobering topic, and I love that you did that. I love that you did that work. You found a way to bring some things and find a middle ground, and that's very difficult at best in any kind of communities. And in, and, and in anything, and I mean, there's so much going on these days that is becoming normalized, and... Um, People, I mean, just people, most people, I'll just say vanilla, now read that stupid novel, Fifty Shades of Grey, or saw right. the even stupider movie, and they, <laughs> and they think they know something about something. And um, you've done a lot of intense looking, it sounds like, and examining, exploring, and evaluating, like, what could be normalized or what could, where people could meet and have a, some kind of consensus. So, um, so I applaud you for that. I really applaud you for that. Let's look at my frame of reference. I'll just tell you my frame of reference is wheel of consent with Betty Martin. Like I've, I've, I use Betty Martin's wheel of consent. I teach Betty Martin's wheel of consent, which has, you know, consent inside of a circle and then anything outside of that is not consent. It gets creepy or weird or rapey or even victimy or those kinds of things. And so I'd like to understand a little bit more your frame of reference or 
where you've met in the middle, even in terms of safe words? Yeah, well, safe words are, um, they're an interesting one. I actually got into an argument with some of my, I mean, doing this work has gotten me on the bad side of some of my idols within the sex positive community, uh-huh. <laughs> which I'm kind of okay with, honestly. Like, I think that it's important to be constantly learning and constantly challenging what we believe. One of the arguments was around safe words, where I said that I felt it was problematic to insist that unless a safe word was used, the interaction was consensual. Because I have to acknowledge that there's lots of systems of power, personal pressure, um, interpersonal pressure to not use a safe word. Um, women, in, I did a, a study, well, not study, a survey, really, of people within the community, and I found that um, women and genderqueer people tended not to use a safe word because they wanted to please their partner. And people who identified as men often didn't use their safe word because they wanted to look tough. Neither of those things are a place of perfect consent. Those are places of coercion, which are sort of consensual as far as the other person's concerned, but not entirely consensual as far as you're concerned. Right. I, I'm following so, you. So I said, like, look, like, I think that it is perfectly possible for a consent violation to happen and a safe word not to be used. Um, some people, when they're traumatized, they freeze up. They can't speak. That is a, a fairly common trauma response. So how can we say that safe words are necessary? And this, you know, community leader, someone who I had read her books um, about BDSM, they were very formative to me. She said, like, no, like, then how can someone be held responsible for another person's consent if that person doesn't give a safe word? Yeah, I, I can see. I actually can see both sides. I mean, I deal for with sure. I sure. De- because I've been dealing with sex also for so long. I mean, I can see where people just get. They have so they have so little self-esteem often. They have so much fear of not being included. They have so much shame of public opinion, both yep. both outside themselves and internalized public opinion, that I could see where people go along. And Betty Martin, when I interviewed her years ago, she said the biggest crime of all is people just going along. Yeah. Just going along. And that's what we learn from the time we're infants. You know, just you're hungry or you're not hungry. You just put the bottle in the mouth or you or the breast in the mouth or you let these aunts and uncles pinch you. Yep. Because you can't do anything else. Your parents are just going along with what they're expected to do and so on and so on and so on. So we learn to just go along and then we fear the public opinion. And like, I love that you said you're okay with your idols not agreeing with you and possibly not even liking you, and you're okay with that. Hooray for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, that's how my parents raised me, right? Like, 
Hooray, hooray. Everybody listening to this, hooray for speaking up and saying, you know, so what? I idolized you and I don't agree with you. Take that. <laughs> it's wonderful. For sure. It's wonderful. I mean, one of the things that was really important to me in my in my journey, I guess, um, and I'm actually writing a zine about it called um, So You've Been Called Out, What Now? Mm. And the zine is going to be basically a resource for people on you violated someone's consent, you've crossed somebody's boundary. How do you responsibly deal with that situation? Because oh, the really key word is responsibly because there's so many people also in the sex teaching world that violate people's boundaries in in a session. Yep. Not All even in a scene, in a session they're getting paid for. Yep. And I mean, and so this is where sex negativity actually really um, helped me understand consent on a much greater level, I think. Sex negativity um, and sort of radical feminism talks a lot about how it is impossible to have 100% consent under a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there are a lot of things that we are sort of encouraged or forced to consent to um, or really go along with because it's not really consent. So can we ever give consent, like full, un, like adulterated consent to somebody else when we've been raised to do things that we don't want to do? That is a phenomenal question, and we're going to take a break there. I'm very excited to be having this conversation. So we will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Lori Handlers, and I want to talk to you today about an Eastern European tour where I'm going to be teaching Tantra all along the way of the tour. Now, many of you know that I did Tantra Tourists, a film where I took people to India and I taught Tantra on the bus and at the Taj Mahal and all these places. So now I'm bringing people to Eastern Europe. And my tour is 14 nights, 15 days at four-star hotels, and it's land only. And uh, the cities we're going to hit are Prague, Budapest, Rovinj, Zadar, Wien, Zagreb, Split, Dubrovnik. And I'm very excited about it. The only place I've been of all those places is Dubrovnik long ago. So if you've never been to Eastern Europe, and you'd like to see those places, you'd like to start in Prague and end in Dubrovnik and learn Tantra along the way, I welcome you to come and join me. You can be a couple or you can be a single. It really doesn't matter. All meals are included. All hotels are included. And it's going to be exciting for me because I've never been there. And I know that it'll be exciting for you too. You'll be able to learn as you tour. So to find out more, you need to go to this website, sacredsensualgetaways.com. That's sacredsensualgetaways.com. And click on Meet the Instructors, click on Laurie Handlers, and come with me. The tour that I'm talking about starts on June 16th and goes to June 29th. Perfect time for Europe. So join me. I look forward to hearing from you. You can write to me, by the way, for more information at laurie 
at butterflyworkshops.com. That's L-A-U-R-I-E at butterflyworkshops.com to find out more about the stores. Please join me in Eastern Europe. It's going to be great. This is Sex and Happiness. I'm your host, Laurie Handlers, and I'm talking to Kitty Stryker today about, oh my goodness, we could say we're talking about consent, but we're also talking about white supremacy, patriarchy, feminism, more radical feminism than radical feminism in the 70s. Uh, and a lot of really good thought, good questions. Her parents raised her well. Uh, Kitty, are, yes. your, are your parents, um, are they alive? Yep. So how do they feel about you? I just have to ask that because sometimes people want to know. I, I, I hope they're jumping for joy about you, but I don't know. Well, my parents, um, my parents were, very, I mean, I was a sex worker for a long time, about 14 years. My mm-hmm. parents were very supportive of that. Good for them. Um, they've been very supportive of my activism, supportive of my being kinky and non-monogamous, like all of that was fine. Um, interestingly, we are not currently not speaking to each other <laughs> because yeah. of um, my mother saying something racist on my timeline on Facebook. Oh my God. And so I set a very strong boundary that she had to apologize for that before she would be allowed back into my life. And, uh, she is about as stubborn as I am. So we'll see <laughs> See how long it takes. Oh my goodness. I, uh, we, we, you and I are a little bit of chips off the same block. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So we were left with a question. We left with the question, is it ever possible to have full-on consent in a culture where there's so much violation? I, I rephrased it. I know that wasn't exactly the way you phrased it, but that was, you know, that was, that was how I heard it. So is it? <clears throat> I don't think that it is, personally. Um, which means for me that what I try to do in my interactions with people is get as close as I can to 100% consent, but with that knowledge that I could be wrong. And I think that that's really important because what I see a lot is people reacting strongly to being accused of violating someone's consent, and they say, oh, well, I would never do something like that. I'm a good person. I don't do those things. But if we're going to change this culture, we all have to acknowledge that we violate other people's consent all the time. Like we have definitely done it. We, none of us are perfect. And if we don't acknowledge that and own it and learn from it, then we're just going to keep perpetuating it. Yes. Thank you. Well said, really well said. I mean, we can look at it as as simple as, Someone consents to have someone drive to wherever, and the person who's behind the wheel goes 20 miles above the speed limit. The person in the passenger seat didn't agree to that. Right. Just saying. I mean, I'm just, I'm giving a non-sexual, you know, white bread example, but that's an example of a violation of a boundary that isn't even discussed. It's like assumed, okay, I'm going in the car, you're driving, you're going to do what you're going to do. 
Yeah. Or I, I mean, an example that I use a lot is, uh, when you're hanging out with your friends and say that you're at a bar or club or whatever, and your friend says, Oh, I'm really tired. Um, I think I'm going to go home. And people say, Oh no, stay, have another one. <laughs> you know, like that is an example of yeah, how yeah. we have normalized pushing people's boundaries. Right. Right. That it's almost seen as a social faux pas if we don't have that process. Mm. Like if our friend says, oh, I'm tired, I think I'm going to leave. And we say, okay, cool. Then it sounds like we don't want to hang out with them. When really we're just like actually acknowledging their consent and saying like, good for you for taking care of yourself and doing what you need to do. Yes. Yes. So, I learned that from Reed Mahalko. Thank you for taking care of yourself. When someone tells me no. Yep. Yep. That's where I learned it from too. Yeah. He says, thank you so much for taking care of yourself. What a different, what a reframe that's powerful. So good. Thank you for going home now. You need to go home. Great. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I'm really grateful to Reed for teaching me that because it has really helped me communicate to other people that I appreciate their no. Um, because you know, if they don't feel like they can say no, then does their yes mean anything? Not really. No, no. That's, I always say that that is so right on. If you can't say no to me, I do not trust your yes for one split second. I can't take anything to the bank. I cannot trust. I have to know that you have the right and the courage and the everything to say no. And I encourage that in people. And I'm very, very enrolling, by the way. You know, I'm like a, I'm like a master at enrollment. So it is hard for people to say no to me. And what's been painful in my life is that they just then blow me off. I would much rather hear no and say, thank you for taking care of yourself. Well, I mean, and, and another thing that I've started to see a lot of is that because I am so clear about my boundaries and I'm so like direct about communicating them because I don't want there to be any confusion. Mm -hmm. um, people find that very intimidating and find it very aggressive. Yeah. Which is horrifying to me. It is horrifying to think that somebody's saying, like, this is a boundary for me. This is the, the way that I prefer to interact with people is seen as aggressive. But allowing someone to just violate your boundaries over and over again until you eventually crack and, you know, can't be around them anymore. That's that's normal. Yeah, I get it. It should be that way. So. We only have a few moments left, and in those moments, I want to know if there's anything, maybe I didn't ask you, but if there's a message or a tip or some piece of information that you feel would be really helpful to an audience who we don't know how much they know about boundaries or what. You know, I'm going to assume that m many of my listeners don't know anything. I always assume that, like we're starting at square one even though I know many of them do, what would be a really valuable piece for besides thank you for taking care of your boundaries and even considering that there are boundaries and maybe you have gone along your whole life and never stated a boundary and maybe to, after today listening to this, you're going to consider what your boundaries might be. Kitty, what would you say to people? 
Um, I think that one of the things that is really important is to have a lot of compassion for yourself and understand that you have, I can almost guarantee it, violated someone's boundaries in the past. Maybe not sexually, but some, some boundary. Sure. Have compassion for yourself about that. But also learn more about dynamics of power. Um, learn more about offering people out when you ask them to do something or ask them if they want something. Um, learn about how to give people more opportunities to say no in their interactions with you. And, um, and if someone says like, Hey, you know, I really feel like you crossed my boundary. That is another place to say, thank you for taking care of yourself and telling me it's really scary for someone to say, I feel like you've crossed my boundaries because in most circumstances, um, people get really defensive and lash out. Yeah. So that is a, a very vulnerable place to be. Um, if someone is willing to be that vulnerable with you and give you the opportunity to check in with yourself and become a better person, um, take that as a, as a gift. That is so sweet and so wise and really such wonderful and powerful information. It's all the above. Kitty, thank you so much. Building Consent Culture, your book, Ask. It's coming yes. out in October, Thorn Tree Press. Uh, I'm looking forward to knowing about that. I'm looking forward to having that be in print. And, um, and maybe once it's in print, you'll come back on the show and let us know how that's going and where people can get it. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for being my guest today on Sex and Happiness. Uh, it was really my pleasure to interview you and hear your point of view uh, and, and deepen, for me, my understanding of consent, my understanding of boundaries, like you took it to another level for me, and I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for having me and giving me the, uh, the opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. Everybody, I want to tell you to tune in next time when I'll be talking to a man about self-love, a man who recently discovered that he actually can love himself, and he really does. And we're going to talk about his process and journey and how he got there. And um, I had a little something to do with it. And so we're, going to, we're just going to talk about how real it is and how practical it is and how you two can fall in love with self. Because it's a it's a great thing to do. So so tune in next time to Sex and Happiness. This is Laurie Handlers, tuning out and saying thank you, thank you, thank you for listening today. I I wouldn't do this without you, and I couldn't do this without you. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us today for Sex and Happiness. To learn more about Lori and her work, please go to ButterflyWorkshops.com or follow her on Twitter or Facebook. You can send her an email at sexandhappiness at gmail.com. We'll see you again right here next week for another edition of Sex and Happiness. Oh.